charges against Blankenship. The United States Attorney, Booth Goodwin, told ABC News the investigation is of the highest priority. We're committed to prosecuting anyone uh, that is responsible for the conditions that led to this horrible tragedy. With the investigation now over, the trials begin. Many are hurting, lost, angry, confused, all devastated with the loss of their loved ones. So far, four former Massey Company employees have been convicted in the investigation, and one, David Hugard, told the court that Blankenship was part of a conspiracy to evade federal safety inspections. Bob Blankenship is a very powerful person. What we have seen is a conspiracy to violate mine safety and health laws, most recently in, in the prosecution of Mr. Hugard, who you mentioned, and that conspiracy was very pervasive. Blankenship denies any role in that. Absolutely not. I'm not part of any type of behavior like that. Have you been told that you're under investigation yourself? Not directly. You know, I think that uh, it's uh, obvious that that's probably the case, that they've looked at everything. Do you expect to be indicted? <laughs> no. You don't? No. Donald Blankenship, the former CEO of Massey Energy, has been indicted by a federal grand jury. I am J.D. Belcher, and this is UBB, a coal miner's story, dedicated to those affected by the tragedy of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster. Chapter 3, The Recovery Alpha Natural Resources, Inc. and the Department of Justice reach a $209 million agreement related to Upper Big Branch mine explosion. That's the headline on justice.gov explaining the result in connection with the criminal investigation of the April 5th, 2010 explosion in Mont Cole. This was announced by Attorney General Eric Holder and U.S. Attorney R. Booth Goodwin II for the District of West Virginia and officials with the FBI and Department of Labor's Office of Inspector General. Now, touching on this lightly, it was explained that Alpha will invest at least $80 million in mine safety improvements at all of its underground mines including those formerly owned by Massey. Alpha will also place $48 million in a mine health and safety research trust to be used to fund academic and nonprofit research that will advance efforts to enhance mine safety. In addition, along with restitution, Alpha will also pay a total of up to $34.8 million in penalties owed to the Mine Safety and Health Administration, including all penalties that arise from the UBB accident investigation. Some of the remedial safety measures included in the agreement are the installation of digital monitoring systems in all underground coal mines to continuously monitor compliance with ventilation requirements and to ensure mines are free of potentially explosive methane gas. Implementation of a plan to ensure that each of its underground mines has the personnel and resources necessary to meet all legal requirements concerning incombustible material and accumulations of coal dust and loose coal. They must purchase state-of-the-art equipment to monitor its mines for explosive concentrations of coal dust and use that equipment in all its underground coal mines. Also, the purchase 
purchase of next-generation rock-dusting equipment, pending MSHA approval, of course, further enhancing its ability to combat explosion hazards. The installation of oxygen cascading systems to help miners make their way to safety if a serious accident should occur. And finally, building a state-of-the-art training facility and implementation of a full training curriculum to train alpha miners, which will be available to other mining companies. The result of that agreement that was announced on December 6, 2011 is the largest ever resolution in a criminal investigation of a mine disaster. Now again, this is directly from justice.gov if you would like to check this out. MSHA wrote a total of 369 citations at the same time as their report. Alpha Natural Resources also paid MSHA a $10.8 million civil fine. There were several trials throughout the years involving Massey Energy employees and others seeking settlements, but for this podcast, we're going to focus on three. Huey Elbert Stover, the security chief at the Upper Big Branch Mine, David Hugart, a president of a Massey Energy subsidiary, and the CEO at the time of Massey Energy, Dom Blankenship. Now, unfortunately, we hit brick walls trying to find folks to speak about the legalities of this case. If folks did respond, it was to say no comment, which I understand and is why we're going to give a general overview of each trial and the ending results. Let's begin with Huey Albert Stover. Stover held the title of security chief at the Upper Big Branch Mine, which was operated by Massey Energy. This position placed him in a critical role regarding the mine's overall security operations. This included managing access to the site, monitoring the comings and goings of personnel and visitors, and ensuring the security of mine property and equipment. As part of his security duties, Stover was likely involved in enforcing safety protocols at the mine. This would have included ensuring compliance with company policies and potentially federal mining regulations. In the event of an incident or an emergency at the mine, Stover would have played a key role in coordinating the security response, including controlling access to the site and collaborating with emergency services. Following the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, Stover's actions came under scrutiny. He was accused of impeding the federal investigation into the disaster. One of the most serious accusations against Stover was that he ordered the disposal of thousands of documents immediately after the explosion. These documents were believed to be relevant to the investigation into the mine's safety practices. Stover was also charged with making false statements to federal investigators. He was accused of lying about Massey Energy's practice of warning mine operators when inspectors were on site, which could allow for cover-up and safety violations. Stover's actions in the aftermath of the disaster led to his arrest and subsequent trial, where he was convicted of lying to investigators and destroying documents. His trial was one of the first legal actions taken in response to the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, setting a precedent for subsequent investigations and prosecutions. In summary, Huey Elbert Stover's role as the security chief at the Upper Big Branch mine placed him in a pivotal position both in terms of the day-to-day security operations of the mine and in the events following the disaster. His actions post-disaster, particularly those that obstructed the federal investigation, led to significant legal consequences and highlighted the importance of transparency and honesty in the aftermath of industrial accidents. In 2012, Stover was sentenced to three years in federal prison. Along with his prison sentence, he was also fined $20,000.
The prosecution of David Hugart, a former president of Massey Energy subsidiary Green Valley Resource Group, is a notable chapter in the legal aftermath of the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster. Hugart's case was significant because it brought to light broader issues of systemic safety violations and corporate malpractice within Massey Energy. His role gave him oversight of multiple mines, though not directly of the Upper Big Branch Mine. With years of experience in the mining industry, Hugart's testimony is particularly significant given his insider knowledge of Massey's operations and safety practices. Hugart was charged with conspiracy to violate mine safety and health laws. This charge was not directly related to the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, but was indicative of broader issues within Massey Energy. He pleaded guilty to the charges, admitting to conspiring to skirt safety regulations and to warning mining operations of surprise safety inspections. Hugart's admissions during his plea pointed directly to the systemic safety violations of Massey Energy. He indicated that the practice of warning mines about inspections was company-wide, implicating higher levels of management. His testimony was crucial as it indirectly implicated Massey Energy's upper management, including CEO Don Blankenship, in systemic safety violations. His prosecution set the stage for the trial of Blankenship and his admissions were a key factor in building the case. This case brought attention to widespread safety violations in the coal mining industry and increased calls for stricter enforcement of mine safety laws. David Hugart was sentenced to 42 months in prison and three years of supervised release. Don Blankenship is a wealthy, powerful, and widely despised businessman accused of skipping on safety measures at his coal mine where 29 men died four years ago. Despite our earlier unpleasant run-in with him, the other day, Blankenship agreed to go head-to-head with ABC's chief investigative correspondent, Brian Ross, for our series, Nightline Investigates. Now facing possible federal criminal charges in the investigation of the mine disaster, Blankenship showed up at ABC News, seemingly gentler, but still full of venom to make the case He's been misunderstood. I think everybody's despised by some. I mean, like you're. But how about for yourself? Well, like yourself, you know, a lot of people despise your your view. So it, it's uh, normal. Why do you think you are despised? Because I do the right thing, and because uh, you do the right thing. Yes. It's not because you do the wrong thing. No. You cut corners on safety. Never did. Never did. Never did. That, of course, is not what state and federal investigators found in the investigation of the disaster at what was called the Upper Big Branch Mine. They told me there'd been an explosion. Officials said the men, aged 20 to 61, were trapped a thousand feet underground after a massive explosion of built-up methane gas and coal dust. The federal safety report concluded if basic safety measures had been in place, there would have been no loss of life at Upper Big Branch. How hard was it going through that trial and all this litigation over the last couple years? Well, first of all, I've been put through a lot since 1984. We were on strike in 84 and 85, and we had drivers shot in the back, and a, a wife of one of our workers shot in the in her home. Uh, we had, you know, and even at Logan, we had people shot. So basically, it was hard, but I guess I had become accustomed to it, perhaps too much accustomed to it. And we were uh, dealing with, you know, emotions. We were dealing with, uh, you know, fake media reports. We were dealing with uh, the government, you know, wanting to uh, cast the blame in a different direction. 
uh, we were dealing with trying to find coal miners uh, that were lost in the in the explosion. So it was uh, it was a multiple chore task for sure to deal with everything, you know, trying to uh, be comforting to the family and then turn right around and having to sign documents uh, to be filed with the government and then trying to deal with uh, lawyers, of course, and insurance companies that didn't want to, you know, write the checks that day and so forth. There was a lot to do and there wasn't much time to do it in. Before we dive into specifics of Don Blankenship's case, I think it's important to frame what happened to Massey Energy shortly after the disaster. When Massey Energy was sold to Alpha Natural Resources in 2011, Don Blankenship, the company's former CEO, did not receive a typical severance package due to the circumstances surrounding his departure and the subsequent Upper Big Branch Mine disaster. Blankenship retired from Massey Energy in December 2010, a few months before the sale to Alpha Natural Resources was finalized. His retirement came amid growing scrutiny over his role in the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster. As a result of his retirement under these conditions, Blankenship's departure from Massey did not involve the kind of severance package that might typically be expected for a retiring CEO. Now, this agreement you can find on sec.gov if you would like to dive into the specifics of the agreement. But here's an overview. His official retirement date was December 31st, 2010. Earlier on December 3rd, 2010, Blankenship had already resigned from his multitude of roles as a member of the board, the chairman, the CEO, and from positions in various subsidiaries and affiliates of Massey Energy. This was more than just a retirement. It was a complete withdrawal from the empire he had helped build. In a move that raised many eyebrows, Blankenship's departure was cushioned with a staggering $12 million in severance payments. Split in two, the first installment of $2 million was paid out as the year 2010 drew to a close, with the subsequent $10 million scheduled for the middle of the following year. But that wasn't all. As part of his exit package, Blankenship was granted payments tied to various performance incentives. Additionally, he was given the option to purchase company-owned property adjacent to his residence in West Virginia. Among the more unique elements of the agreement was a right-of-way, a non-exclusive personal access easement, a path leading right to the heart of Blankenship's personal domain in Sprigg, West Virginia. In a touch of nostalgia, the company agreed to hand over the title to a 1965 blue Chevrolet truck, a vehicle with its own story, previously owned and then transferred to the company by Blankenship himself. The contract also ensured Blankenship's well-being post-retirement with two years of health care coverage. Let's take your blood pressure. Crucially, it granted him access to company documents, potentially key in any future legal defenses tied to his tenure. However, freedom came with strings attached. For two years, Blankenship was barred from joining or aiding any competitors, and his lips were sealed by a strict non-disclosure agreement safeguarding Massey's confidential information. Interestingly, the retirement wasn't a clean break. Blankenship agreed to remain as a consultant, providing his expertise to Massey Energy, albeit with boundaries defined and compensation set. As Blankenship signed off on this agreement, he not only closed his chapter at Massey Energy, but also agreed to a series of terms that would shape his post-Massey life. It was an agreement that spoke of golden handshakes, legal safeguards, and the complexities of navigating the aftermath of a corporate tenure shadowed by tragedy. And so, as we reflect on this pivotal document, we gain insights into the corporate world's intricacies and the aftermath of one of the most significant events in the coal mining industry's history. All right, so uh, 
go ahead and introduce me to yourself and, and who you are. Uh, well, my name is Rob Cleland, and I guess for these purposes, I was the uh, sketch artist, uh, courtroom sketch artist for the Don Blankenship trial. It was it, it was kind of odd. I was, uh, yeah, I'll t- I can tell you my funny Blankenship story, you know, while we're doing sure. you know, interview and stuff. It's like, so it's the second day of the trial, the day after the, the where you watched it on the closed circuit. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd already been drawn. I did a drawing of Don from the side and, uh, you know, I made him like, he, you know, he has the huge chin, you know, double chin and stuff. And, you know, he was coming out uh, going. We had a recess and he was coming out. And he looked at my drawings and stuff and he was kind of eyeballing, you know, the drawing I did of him. And then uh, so recess, I was like, oh, man, I better pee before I go back in there. And so I'm in the bathroom at one urinal. He comes in. He gets at the urinal next to me. And I'm like, all right, you know, this is weird. But then he says, ease up on the chin. And I'm like, what? I, c- I couldn't even believe it. I didn't even know what to say. I was just like, well, yeah, okay. Throughout the four years of making this podcast, I was able to obtain one interview with first-person accounts of the trial. And, well, Rob was it. And you can view his actual sketches from the trial on our website, upperbigbranch.com. Rob was a real nice guy, and he's super talented, so I highly suggest you check out his work. And more on this, there are several things that are highly relevant to the Upper Big Branch disaster that I just don't feel right in covering because we don't have firsthand experience from the trials. These elements include phone recordings, countless testimonies, and also memos from Dom Blankenship that the prosecutors used to try and say that Blankenship put profits over safety. Now, I wanted to mention these because I know it's going to come up, but I suggest you look online and judge for yourself because until I can get legal representatives to actually give me an interview or return a phone call, I'm not going to dive extensively into the trial information because it'll just be me talking for an hour. And again, I just don't feel right about putting my interpretation to basically just words on PDFs. Now for some specifics of the charges. Blankenship was indicted on four counts, including conspiracy to violate mine safety standards, making false statements to the SEC, and securities fraud. The charges alleged that Blankenship conspired to systematically skirt safety regulations and contributed to an unsafe working environment that led to the Upper Big Branch mine disaster. The trial took place in 2015 in Charleston, West Virginia. Prosecutors presented evidence including phone calls and memos that suggested Blankenship prioritized production over safety. The defense argued that Blankenship was committed to safety and that the disaster was an unforeseeable accident. Ultimately, Blankenship was acquitted of the most serious charges, but found guilty of a misdemeanor charge of conspiring to willfully violate mine safety standards. The verdict was met with mixed reactions. Some saw it as a measure of accountability, while others felt it fell short of justice for the victims' families. In 2016, Blankenship was sentenced to one year in prison, one year of supervised release, and fined $250,000, just a little over 2% of the cash payout of his retirement agreement. This was one of the rare instances where a high-ranking corporate executive was jailed for workplace safety violations. The trial and its outcome had significant implications for corporate accountability and mine safety regulation. After serving his sentence, Blankenship maintained his innocence and continued to be a controversial figure, even making a bid 
for the U.S. Senate. Hi, I'm Don Blankenship, candidate for U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. Swamp Captain Mitch McConnell has created millions of jobs for China people. While doing so, Mitch has gotten rich. In fact, his China family has given him tens of millions of dollars. Mitch's swamp people are now running false negative ads against me. They are also childishly calling me despicable and mentally ill. The war to drain the swamp and create jobs for West Virginia people has begun. I will beat Joe Manchin and ditch cocaine Mitch for the sake of the kids. It didn't go anywhere, obviously. (laughs) He lost. Leslie Rubin was a reporter at the time and covered those events in Montcole, West Virginia and is currently the assistant news director and a reporter at WCHS Eyewitness News. So when Blankenship was trying to get on the U.S. Senate, he was running against Joe Manchin, which obviously he has a long history with Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin was one of the central figures during UBB who really came out hard against Blankenship. I believe, you know, that, that Don has blood on his hands. And I believe that justice will be done. I've got to believe that. In my heart, and it'll be done. To defend himself, Blankenship has paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce this 50-minute film called Never Again that presents him as a champion of mine safety. And this documentary is further evidence of his taking his responsibility seriously, even at great risk and expense to himself. Families of the miners killed in the disaster in West Virginia are outraged at what they call Blankenship's shameless self-promotion. I think he's a liar. He is a murderer. He's the devil. The film repeats Blankenship's long-held contention that the fire in the mine was caused by a natural gas leak that could not have been prevented. I don't think that anything that was in place in the industry at that moment would have uh, prevented it. But state and federal investigators say they took a close look at Blankenship's natural gas leak theory and dismissed it as an effort by him to shift the blame away from the allegedly lax safety practices at his company. He made this suggestion back in June of 2010, and his characterization of this is simply a sham. It was production ahead of safety. The Blankenship film also includes an interview with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who now says he was lied to and never would have appeared if he had known it was for Blankenship. Don's taking his millions of dollars that he made off the sweat and blood of the miners and using it now, trying to turn things around and vindicate himself. Now you talk about a cynical approach to something that's heartless. That's about as bad as it gets. Blankenship's film also takes on the news media. We now see that reporters, unions, and the government ignored the evidence that supports a theory that makes sense. Especially ABC News. America's coal mining country. We now know... Seeing a bias before I even asked him the first question. I don't mind talking to you. We know it'll be biased, but we'll talk. You think it'll be biased? Oh, definitely. I'm not trying to twist it, but I'm... I'm... You'll have plenty of time to cut the tapes up and make this look the way you want it. He ran this campaign against him and Patrick Morrissey. He came in third. He didn't win. And but that wasn't the end of Don Blankenship and his political aspirations. At one point, then he files to run for president as a member of the Constitution Party. Along with political ads that Don Blankenship produced with his many runs for office, he was also releasing ads involving the trial. Did you know that Don Blankenship's trial was not about the mine explosion? Really? You sure? Oh, yeah. The Obama judge wouldn't even let Don mention the explosion. Obama knew Don had nothing to do with the explosion, so he wanted to put Don in prison to hide the truth. Well, what was the trial about? Mostly about a letter that Don didn't even write. 
Obama tried to put Blankenship in prison for life over a letter he didn't write? Yeah, actually it was over a single sentence in a public letter. Wow, life in prison for a single sentence. That's crazy. It sure is, but Obama's team couldn't get even one West Virginia juror to find Don guilty of any felony charges. 36 votes for Don, zero for Obama. West Virginians know that Obama was against them and Cole. They also know that Don fought back. I am voting for Don. Now that I know the truth, me too. I'm Don Blankenship, candidate for U.S. Senate. I approve this message. Paid for by Don Blankenship for U.S. Senate. Obama became a key term that Don Blankenship would use involving the UBB trial. He even wrote a book entitled Obama's Deadliest Cover-Up. In this book, Don Blankenship presents his perspective on the events and aftermath of the UBB disaster. The book is essentially Blankenship's narrative, where he discusses his beliefs about the causes of the explosion and challenges the official investigation's findings. He argues that the disaster was due to natural causes, specifically a sudden release of natural gas rather than the safety violations for which Massey Energy was cited. This stance is in contrast to the conclusions of multiple investigations that attributed the explosion to a combination of preventable safety violations, including inadequate ventilation and accumulation of coal dust. We go over all this in Chapter 2, but also Blankenship uses the book to critique the Obama administration alleging that the government's investigation and prosecution were politically motivated as part of a broader agenda against the coal industry. He asserts that there was a cover-up at the highest levels of government to shift blame onto him and Massey Energy for political reasons. Obama's Deadliest Cover-Up is a controversial work, reflecting Blankenship's contentious position in the coal industry and the polarized views on the Upper Big Branch disaster. The book is a reflection of his attempt to reshape the narrative of the event and defend his legacy in the face of widespread criticism and legal repercussions following the disaster. How hard was it going out and telling the family members of these miners that their loved ones were dead? That was very difficult. Of course, uh, the first six or so came out fairly early in the process, and, and some of them were in there for several days trying to find them. So it was it was difficult. You know, we uh, some of them were very emotionally charged. Uh, we we uh, first told them at the uh, safety building at UBB. And some of them were so angry they even attacked us verbally and so forth. Uh, you know, most of the politicians ran down to talk to the media, but those of us in the management pretty much stayed with the families, you know, for the next several hours after that. Did you ever imagine at that time that you would one day end up sitting inside a jail cell? Well, I, I, I think anybody that's over a large company and they have a major tragedy is aware of that risk. So, you know, it wasn't like I imagined the details of it, but anybody that has a you know, a responsibility of the type of overseeing mines or chemical plants or airline industry is always aware of the uh, issues and problems that develop from a tragedy. What would you say to those critics who say that you put profits over people? I think anybody that knows me knows not only that that's not true, but how outrageously untrue it is. We, uh, we were the leader. In fact, I was personally the uh, probably the most prolific inventor of mine safety devices in the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, I know we listed two dozen things that I had personally uh, caused to be placed in the industry, including what is now being mandated across all the mining industry called a proximity device, which detects the presence of a miner near it. And if the machine pre presents a risk to the miner, 
it kicks off and quits running. Don Blankenship's one-year federal prison sentence was finished in 2017, and in the years that have passed since, he's continued to try and clear his name and has also filed lawsuits against media outlets claiming defamation. His candidacy was nationwide news for a long time, like this clip from The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. But West Virginia was the race that everyone was watching. And from the news coverage last night, I can't actually tell you who won, but I can absolutely tell you who lost. Primary results are in for four states. West Virginia voters rejecting the race-baiting, conspiracy-laden candidacy of Don Blankenship. Convicted coal baron Don Blankenship came up short. West Virginia Republicans rejected Don Blankenship. Don Blankenship finished a distant third in the West Virginia Senate race. That's right, West Virginia. Meet your new Republican Senate nominee, not Don Blankenship. Yay! Now, I'm not gonna lie. I thought it was a little weird for the TV news to be focusing on a candidate who came in third in a primary. But once you meet Don Blankenship, you understand that this guy might not be newsworthy, but he was definitely great TV. Politicians are running a lot of crazy ads. They blew up the coal mine and then put me in prison. Now they're running ads that say the coal mine blew up and I went to prison. There's no surprise there. Uh, <laughs> actually, I, I feel like that was a surprise. Uh, politicians don't usually run ads saying they went to prison <laughs> after they blew up coal mines. Which, side note, really happened. 29 people died, and Blankenship served a year in prison for it. And I'm willing to bet, with that bourbon and Xanax delivery, no one messed with him in the joint. You know, guys were just like, hey, man, what are you in for? He's like, the coal mine blew up, and I went to prison. There's no surprise there. <laughs> I'm like, damn, man, you loco, man. <laughs> I'm just here for insider trading, man. <laughs> and, and believe it or not, that's not even the reason Blankenship's Senate run blew up, right? It's actually for his completely original views on Mitch McConnell. One of my goals as U.S. Senator will be to ditch cocaine Mitch. When you vote for me, you're voting for the sake of the kids. Cocaine Mitch? <laughs> Are you serious? There's no way that Mitch McConnell is on cocaine. <laughs> I mean, it is fun to imagine that he is. Like, he's actually only 35 years old, but he parties so hard that he just looks like that now. <laughs> It'll be fun. He's like, oh, do it again. And I know this is, this is a hard question. Are you kind of... Are you satisfied with the judgment that happened? Not at all. Mon Lynch, who is the son of William Roosevelt Lynch whose life was lost in the explosion. Not at all. For, for the amount of people that, that lost their lives and the, the lives affected, it just, sure, besides all of that, I mean, the communities, just the state in general, the, the mining industry, wasn't no justice in none of that, none whatsoever. I mean, people get more years for less. And you you responsible for, for 29 men's lives. And what did you get, a year and a day? Something like that? No. No. Were you satisfied with the investigation portion? Like, do you feel like IMSHA and the state kind of was thorough enough to find an explanation? Yeah, there's it, it, just no, no making it right. So 
I mean, the investigation they did, I guess it, it, it satisfied what it needed to do, but I, I don't, I don't believe that that it went far enough. That that all go back to what you said before the accountability. That nobody want to want to want to take the blame. I mean, it was a lot of blame, but it, it it's somebody's fault. And and to be honest with you, I just can't I can't blame everything on blame ship because it 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 pro- it wasn't all him. Yeah, there was other people who had some stuff involved, had involvement in it, and everybody should should have got their fair share. Me personally, I just feel like I've never got a concrete answer. Kim Lane, who lost her husband Richard Lane in the explosion. There, I mean, again, I just want to know the truth. But there's so many different sides. How do I know what the truth is? I don't know the truth. If someday someone will say this is exactly what happened, then I think I can maybe live with that. But until I know someone that's going to tell me that, I don't know. Because I know there's several different sides. There's the M, the Massey energy side. There's the MSHA side. And then there's the investigation. So who do you believe? I don't know. Because I'm just the widow of a coal miner that doesn't know the truth. But maybe someday I will. But I... I can tell you this, as far as me moving on, the one thing that has helped me get through it is to know that those men died doing a job that they were paid to do and that Rick was proud to be a miner. He loved being a coal miner. And if something happened, and I know it, I can honestly tell you from the bottom of my heart, I don't believe that it was anybody's fault, any one of those 29 men's fault. I don't know about rock dust. I don't know about anything else. But I can tell you, I believe that it was just, I have to believe this. I'm hoping it was just an accident that was something that was never foreseen that I can live with that. If I know, if I just tell myself it was an accident, then I can't argue with that. So trial's over. Things are ending. Reports are releasing. Do you feel now that anything changed in the mining industry from? Not a bit. Sean Ellison, former Massey Energy employee at Upper Big Branch. If you remember, he called in the day of the explosion. I still got, got some friends that's in the mines right now that's on my fire department. And uh, you just listen to them talking and you're like, yep, that was the same way when I was there 11 years ago, you know, over 12 years ago. Like, wow, how can how can that still be the same? I think they like to say that things are changing and that regulations are better when you got an outlaw, though, that when you got outlaw bosses that do whatever they can do for the company, because, you know, let's face it. Your bosses, I mean, anybody in the mines makes good money. And they're afraid if they don't do what they're asked to do, they're going to, you know, they're going to lose it. And it went back and forth when I was in the mines. Sometimes the mines was 
in the miners' hands. You know, there was excess of jobs. If they made you mad, you could leave here tomorrow. You could have a job down the street the next day. Um, then it got to the point to where there wasn't a lot of excess jobs. And if you didn't do what they wanted you to do at work, well, then you might be out of a job. And, uh, you know, your bosses make excellent money. So if they're going to be an outlaw and do what they're kind of told to do, they're going to do it. It don't matter what regulations changes or what they say is going to be better because you ain't going to practice it. Did it help changing professions as far as how you failed at work? It did um, because where where I work at now, um, we have some big dumpsters uh, and boxes at these mine sites. And uh, I tried to go to Whitesville twice to go down there and change out boxes. And you had to drive past UBB and I'd freeze. I'd get down there. I'd have a panic attack, couldn't move, couldn't drive, you know, nothing. Um, But if I stay away from it, then most days I feel pretty good. A lot of days, you know, there's not a day goes by that I don't think of the guys. Um, I'm friends on Facebook with a lot of the families, and you see the kids growing up and graduating. And uh, it's what Steve's sister, Betty, Hera, me and her become real good friends, you know, after and stay in close contact. Tell me about something you've witnessed with your daughter since then, something good. She cheerleaded through middle school. She always said she wouldn't be a cheerleader. She really enjoyed it. She's uh, done really well in school, straight A's and B's. She recently got her learner's permit. The driving started. So it's uh, anytime we go somewhere, it's, hey, Dad, can I drive? We could do about a vehicle, things like that. But uh, she's, uh, she's a good girl. She's, she saved me a lot. I can, I can say that. I'm chief of the fire department here in Pax. I've been chief here for 10 years and uh, been here for 26 years. And that's what she told me. She said, um, maybe when I turn 16, I want to go to class and and do it for a little bit. And then she, uh, she wants to go to college and be a neonatal nurse. What would you want to say to someone who didn't know Rick? He was a wrestler and he was a heck of an athlete in high school. Probably one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Although if you made him mad, you better watch out. When it came to his friends and his family, he was a protector. You don't mess with him. Cause I saw him put a guy on the ground one night in a parking lot for saying something bad to one of my friends. And in three seconds, he was picking gravel out. The guy was picking gravel out of his arms. So yeah, it, that's the one thing. He was true to his family. He was true to his friends. And if you were his friends, you were lucky because he would defend you to the end. Oh, man, he was one of the kindest, most caring, loving people you ever meet. He was just a a genuine, good person. And everybody that he came across, I'm sure they got the same feeling as me, that, that that's somebody that you can count on. Um, for whatever, you, you can talk to him, you, 
He'll help your kids out. He, he was he was a true friend to any and everybody that knew him. And I mean, there's it, it, a lot of people out there that I mean that 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 probably do the stuff that he do, but he was one of a kind. Really was. A lot of people miss him. In the rolling hills and tight-knit communities of West Virginia, the memory of the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster is etched deeply into the heart of every resident. Each year, as the calendar turns to that fateful day in April, a somber hush falls over the state. It's a time when the people of West Virginia come together to honor the 29 miners who lost their lives in one of the worst mining disasters in American history. In towns and villages, candlelit vigils illuminate the night, casting a gentle glow that reflects both the sorrow and the solidarity of the community. Churches hold special services, their pews filled with families and friends, some holding back tears, others allowing them to flow freely. Memorial sites become focal points for gatherings, where people lay wreaths, miners' helmets, and personal mementos in a poignant tribute to the fallen. Stories are shared, sometimes in whispers, sometimes in proud, resonant voices. Stories of the miners, their lives, their dreams, and their love for their families and their community. These annual commemorations are not just about mourning. They are a testament to resilience, a reminder of the unbreakable spirit of West Virginia's people, who even in the face of tragedy, continue to stand strong, together, bound by an unspoken promise to never forget the sons, brothers, fathers, and friends who went into the mine that day and never returned. One of these events is held at CrossFit Cole in Mabscott, West Virginia, every year on April 5th. They gather and do what is called the 29, a memorial wad, which stands for workout of the day, consisting of four rounds for time, 29 kettlebell swings, 29 sit-ups, 29 box jumps, 29 knees to elbows, and 29 burpees. Dave Green, who is a coal miner, member of the mine rescue team, and a member of CrossFit Coal, welcomes everyone to the yearly tradition. And so, you know, when we do these memorial wads, it's, it's that sense of community. It just reminds us that, you know, we'll always be a part of something and how important it is. And, you know, we're together every day. And I truly, there's so many people in here that I love. And, and every day uh, that I come in here, sometimes my day's hard. You know, sometimes my day's not so hard. But uh, either way, I always walk out of here feeling better. And um, we do a lot of of memorial wads uh, but obviously this one's this one's very special to us in Weissville, west virginia a memorial still stands in honor of these 29 men that were lost in the upper big branch mine explosion here is governor earl ray tomlin this memorial will ensure the world will always remember the 29 good men the 29 miners who gave their lives doing the work that all of us depend upon their memories will be honored generation after generation after generation. So ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the Upper Big Branch Mining Memorial Group, it is my privilege to present to you the Upper Big Branch Mining Memorial. 
Red buds bloom in the holler It's a West Virginia spring Songs were written in honor of these men at UBB. Here's a clip of one by Anderson Ellswick. He tapes up his britches And starts his old truck One more day to try his luck On the big cold river Down from Sundial Across the hood of that old Chevy He can see the stockpile He says, Lord, please protect me And my brothers underground I know all our children Are gonna need us around while I dig this coal for the massy energy man, keep my pinner true, my senses keen, Lord, I know you can. I know you can. To hear more, visit the Facebook page Anderson Ellswick Music. And thank you for the use. I reached out to Anderson about using it in the podcast, and he quickly said, no problem at all. To all who called them friends, worked alongside them in the mines, or knew them as neighbors, Moncole, Naoma, or Whitesville, in the Coal River Valley, and across West Virginia. Let me begin by saying that we, have been mourning with you throughout these difficult days. Our hearts have been aching with you. We keep our thoughts with the survivors who are recovering and resting at the hospital and at the homes. We are thankful for the rescue teams. But our hearts ache alongside you. We're here to memorialize 29 Americans. Carl Acord, Jason Atkins, Christopher Bell, Gregory Stephen Brock, Kenneth Allen Chapman, Robert Clark, Charles Timothy Davis, Corey Davis, Michael Lee Ellswick, William I. Griffin, Stephen Hara, Edward Dean Jones, Richard K. Lane, William Roosevelt Lynch, Nicholas Darrell McCroskey, Joe Markham, Ronald Lee Maynard, James E. Mooney, Adam Keith Morgan, Rex L. Mullins, Joshua S. Naper, Howard D. Payne, Dillard Earl Persinger, Joel R. Price, Deward Scott, Gary Quarles, Grover Dale Skeens, Benny Willingham, and Ricky Workman. Nothing I, or the Vice President, or the Governor, none of the speakers here today, nothing we say can fill the hole they leave in your hearts. 
that so often we take for granted. The electricity that lights up a convention center, that lights up our church or our home, our school, our office. The energy that powers our country, the energy that powers the world. In the somber aftermath of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster, a tragedy that left an indelible scar on the heart of the coal mining community, we turn our gaze to the changes, or perhaps the lack thereof, in the realm of mine safety regulations. As the shockwaves of the disaster reverberated across West Virginia's valleys, there were promises of change, vows of never again. The Mine Safety and Health Administration, known as MSHA, did tighten its grip by actually enforcing the pattern of violations rule aimed at mines with recurring safety breaches. Yet, the effectiveness of these measures remains a topic of intense debate. Critics argue that the rule's impact has been blunted by bureaucratic hurdles and lack of enforcement muscle, leaving miners in a vulnerable limbo. Technological advances, while promising on paper, have been met with slower-than-expected adoption. Continuous personal dust monitors designed to provide real-time data are not yet a universal staple in the mines. Every miner doesn't wear one every day, but all of the equipment operators must be sampled at least 15 times per quarter. Coming from another miner I spoke to, he stated that he's aware that things aren't perfect in the coal industry, but they are better than they ever have been. He is also a member of a mine rescue team. I ran this series by him because it's really important to me that I get this right, as I'm not anti-coal mining. I'm pro-coal miner. After sending him the series, he stated, To be honest, parts of it does feel sort of bitter toward the coal companies and industry. I'm sure it's easier to find people, too, that are bitter to talk. Also, there has been advances in safety in the industry since UBB. Personal dust monitors are used in all mines now. Also, tracking and communication systems and proximity detection. He also sent me some documents, including one involving MSHA's respirable coal dust rule which went into effect on August 1st, 2014. On MSHA.gov, it states MSHA's landmark respirable dust rule went into effect, adding a number of increased protections for coal miners and closing several loopholes that masked their exposure to unhealthy coal mine dust. Respirable coal dust sampling results for the first year of the rule containing those new protections show that compliance is achievable and, most importantly, that the nation's coal miners are now more than ever, better protected from the debilitating and deadly black lung disease. Now, granted, this is from MSHA's website, but this is a great start if things are being implemented accordingly. Now, that if is a big word that can mean life and death. This gap between regulation and reality means that for many miners, the risk of hazardous conditions remains a daily gamble. Training and emergency preparedness have indeed seen improvements, but the frequency and intensity of the drills vary widely from mine to mine. The disparity in resources and commitment among mining companies has led to a patchwork of safety practices, leaving some miners less prepared than others for emergency situations. The cultural shift towards prioritizing safety over production, often touted in the wake of disaster, has been more of a murmur than a roar. The harsh reality is that for some companies, the bottom line continues to cast a long shadow over the well-being 
of the miners. This ongoing struggle between safety and profit paints a troubling picture of an industry grappling with its conscience. Despite these efforts, the haunting truth remains. Miners continue to face perilous conditions and fatalities, though fewer still occur. The trauma of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster still lingers. A reminder of the steep cost of complacency and the unfinished journey towards a safer mining industry. While my heart goes out to the families and friends who lost loved ones and had others who were affected by the tragedy of this disaster, I'm left feeling that nothing much has changed when it comes to the safety of a coal miner. As the narrator of this podcast, I approach this as not an anti-coal narrative, but from a place of deep understanding and appreciation for the industry. Having spent years working as a coal miner myself, I've experienced firsthand the complexities, challenges, and the often unacknowledged rewards of this profession. My aim is to provide a balanced, insightful exploration of the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster without negating the essential role that coal mining plays in our lives and economy. This series is about honoring the memories of those we lost and learning from the past while still recognizing the value and importance of coal mining as an industry. It's a tribute to the resilience and spirit of the mining community, a community that I was once a part of, and one which continues to hold a significant place in my heart and our shared history. To the owners and operators of the mines, whose decisions shape the destiny of the brave souls delving into the Earth's depths, there is a timeless adage that bears repeating. Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. This isn't just a whimsical saying. It's a stark reminder of the weight of responsibility resting on your shoulders. In the intricate labyrinth of mining tunnels, where each turn holds both treasure and potential tragedy, complacency is your greatest adversary. Murphy's Law isn't a curse, but a caution. A call to anticipate and prepare for every possible scenario, no matter how unlikely it may seem. Your miners descend with the trust that every possible measure has been taken to ensure their safety, to protect them from the unforgiving nature of their work. In the mining industry, where the line between safety and disaster is as thin as the coal seams themselves. Embracing this principle isn't just a good practice. It's a moral imperative. Let Murphy's Law be a guiding light, not a looming shadow, in the relentless pursuit of a future where going underground no longer means walking a tightrope between life and death. Thank you for joining us on this journey through UBB, A Coal Miner's Story. 
This episode, deeply rooted in the narrative of the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster, was narrated by Nora Belcher and me. We extend our sincere appreciation to Eric Robbins and Jordan Waldron, who composed the music to help convey the gravity and emotion of this tragic chapter in mining history. As we continue to explore and understand the multifaceted story of the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster, We invite you to listen to all three chapters of our series. It's important to remember that this podcast is a non-profit endeavor crafted with the sole purpose of shedding light on this significant event. All recordings and materials have been utilized under the Fair Use Act for journalism purposes to ensure that the story of the Upper Big Branch mine disaster is told with the depth and respect it deserves. Learn more about this podcast by visiting UpperBigBranch.com. Please be aware that the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast producer and do not represent any official stance or viewpoint on any other individual entity. They are provided for informational and educational purposes only.